When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I want winners. I want people that want to win. When you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. There is no middle ground. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. Come after me. I'm a man. This week on Double Dragon... NFL analyst Fran Duffy is back to help Steve and I do a season review, and we also offer up a few postseason awards. Then, to help me gear up for Electric Boogaloo, check that out over at Bald Moves Primary House of the Dragon podcast feed. I talk religion with a specialist on religion in the early modern period. His name is Brendan Walsh, and he comes to us all the way from Australia. Okay. Without further ado, here is comic Steve Osborne and analyst Fran Duffy. So, Fran, we've got some uh, got some trouble in the streets here. It's a big problem with the fan base. <laughs> They're divided themselves, blacks versus greens. You're an expert on Philadelphia fans in general. <laughs> What advice can you give to the fandom? Shall we just lean into this? Shall we just become our worst selves? Or shall we find some degree of civility here? I mean, unfortunately, I don't know that there's much work to be done to fix this because I feel like that's part of our uh, society, right? It's either mm. it's it's one side or the other. It's, you know, there, there's all kinds of analogies I can make here, but uh, it's tough to find that gray area sometimes. So it feels like we almost have to lean into this, right? Uh, in that uh, it is going to be the the high towers versus the Targaryens. And uh, you, you pick one side. And if you're on the other side, then uh, screw you. And if not, then you're on our side and you're you're welcome all day. And Steve, do you have an opinion on this? On Philadelphia? <laughs> <laughs> We'd love to hear what it's like to be a fan that has opinions and disagrees with other fans. And, you know, we, we'd like mm. some advice from you on this. Um, well, I mean, I just, it, going back to Philadelphia really quick, it's just really strange for me to be like seeing Philadelphia as the good guy <laughs> in the situation. Like, that's weird for me. Um, <laughs> And, and I, and it's I'm weird not, for us too, for what it's worth. <laughs> you just got you just got socks full of batteries, and you're like, well, I mean, I guess I guess we're on the right side of history mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. And yeah, no. It's, what would uh, be the uh, House of the Dragon equivalent to booing Santa Claus? What would that <laughs> What would that look like for House of the Dragon? It's <laughs> a good question. I guess. Uh, I mean, there's um, no one in the show that really is. Yeah, praise- we, we don't have that. Kind of- character yet yeah maybe cheering when uh the dragon chomps the other dragon at the end. <laughs> <laughs> all right as harren hall burns we said we, we cheer and applaud 
<laughs> so, yeah, so our advice to the fandom, try to be as civil as a Philadelphia fan. It's, you know, that's the most aspirational thing that we could hope for at this point. That's, that's the code I live by personally in my everyday life, so I think that, that, that'll that work for everybody. You're very good. Yeah, very but good. these buses aren't going to set fire to themselves. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're doing a uh, our second edition of the Sports Talk. Approach to House of the Dragon. Here's my first question. Which coach gets canned first? Otto for planning an assassination on Allison's childhood best friend or Damon for strangling the star player of the Blacks? Which coach gets canned first? Steve? Oof. Um, I don't think it's Otto. I think Otto's got he's too he's too uh, Bill Belichick. I mean, that's what I see. Um, you think yeah, he's I, too good? He can just do whatever he wants. I think. Well, his, if if I if you look at it, if the two if those are the two uh, main criteria that we're looking at here, um, you know, which I would say that maybe Damon is closer to Draymond punching Jordan Poole. I was thinking Sprewell. Uh, Sprewell actually <laughs> did true. did choke PJ Carlissimo. Yeah, I would say that. I th- I think Otto has I mean his even though there's an assassination in there I think we've already discussed that it almost seems like it's an understood thing that if there is a challenge to what is deemed a, the proper succession uh, then you're it's you know it's okay to go ahead and eliminate that potential challenge even if that challenge never actually mm actually manifest so you're suggesting that yeah Otto's Otto's not doing anything untoward it's in the playbook this is actually in the playbook it's legit it's a legit legal play if you look under the box lid of Game of Thrones this is uh, this is one of the uh, the options it's a variant Uh, Um, whereas I see what Damon I mean Damon is uh, look I mean he's looking at her they're all operating as if she's the queen he choked the queen yeah, he certainly did. Fran, you got an opinion on this? You know, I, I actually, my gut says Otto, and namely because who has the power to bench uh, said offender? And I think obviously it's Rhaenyra and it's Allison. And Allison has already done plenty to combat what her father has been trying to do, um, you know, and trying to essentially uh, take hold of that power and use it for himself and really kind of take control of the situation. Whereas with Rhaenyra, uh, and this is not excusing uh, what Damon did, obviously, Obviously, but coming out immediately out of that, uh, the smile, the realization on her face, the, mm-hmm. you could almost get that sense, number one, that that was not the first time that there was that kind uh, of you know interaction mm. between those two. But also, number two, I think there was almost and this is kind of getting into the scene itself. There was almost like a, a validation for for Rhaenyra in that moment of like. Yeah, like he, my, you know, my father never told you, and that validates like why I should feel the way I do. We should not be the aggressors here. We should be taking it. He never told you because you were this hothead, right? And to me, like I kind of look at that as not necessarily she that she pities him, but a little bit in that area, right? Where it's not like she did not fight and combat him immediately coming out of that. And so um, I think it's more likely that Allison is going to try and do more to overstep her father as opposed to uh, Rhaenyra trying mm-hmm. to uh, to. To, to put the uh, the kibosh on Damon. So yeah, Damon kind of when he resorts to physical violence, it's it's almost a concession that I've I'm out of words. Yeah, like you 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 clearly know more. You have better things to say. You've won the argument. I'm going to resort to the other avenue for Allison. I kind of feel like 
there's a little bit of a GM versus ownership issue. It's like, who's got the power? Allison used to have the power because you, you, the ownership group was sort of hands off. But now that her son's on the throne, it's kind of like having a new owner, uh, the owner of a new team who's like, is this going to be a hands off owner or is this owner going to let the GM do his job? So I don't know if Allison, Allison certainly was kind of running the kingdom. I think kind of remains to be seen now that Aegon's on the throne, who is actually running the show, who would have the power to can auto if, if indeed you wanted to can auto. Well, I think, see, I look at it, the analogy, I'll, I'll go a little uh, different, and I'll say that Aegon is the, the new star player, the free agent that you just picked up. He's going to choose who's coaching. Yep. Okay. All right. Yeah, so he's he's Kevin Durant deciding yeah, to so oust. Allison, Allison, yeah, Allison has a chance, uh, but maybe as the GM, but uh, but again, if, if, Otto's, if Otto's the coach, it depends on who's going to be in the ear first, right? And we had a whole episode about yeah. let's get to the ear before we, anyone else does, as if that ear can only be talked to now. Um, All right. So, but, it's like a, a race to see which limo can pick him up from the airport first uh, when he gets into town. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, rookie of the year honors. I'm going to give you a few options. You can go a different direction if you want. Here are the options. Amond. Helena or Jace, Rookie of the Year honors. Mm. Steve, you got an opinion on this? I mean, I got to go with Amon. I mean, I mean, sometimes it's it's a little sloppy, but I mean, you want to just talk about raw talent. It's odd to think of a, a rookie having an eye patch. It's a, it's a little, un, you know, you think <laughs> normally eye patches go to grizzled veterans. Well, he's one of those rookies, you know, where it's like he's he's clearly an international rookie because you're like, yeah, I mean, he's supposed to be a certain age, but I got to check that birth certificate. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> he's a Cuban pitcher. <laughs> That's right. All right. Uh, so, yeah. So, all right. So, Amond, and then, of course, uh, Fran, yours is rookie of the year. Yeah, I think it would have to be Amond, uh, and I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit, but it just felt like every scene that he was in, uh, I was just captivated by him. And there's so many similarities between he and Damon as in terms of uh, mm-hmm. the presence, not just with the job by the actors, but just the characters in general. Um, I think I got to go Amond, and uh, not just for the impact he can make on screen, but also uh, things he does when he's not even speaking. I, I would say it would be Amond. So I was impressed with Jace this last episode. Like, you know, you stand up to Damon. That's kind of a big deal, right? Sure. So he, but as soon as Amon took off the eye patch and revealed the sapphire eye, he took that was it. Yep. I, 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 I want my rookie <laughs> of the year to be a showman. I, I, I want I want to be able to market this league, and and that's what I want out of my rookie. I want a sapphire eyeball. Yeah, and it's really going to set the tone, right? I mean, because I mean, now that he's got a uh, sponsorship from the Sapphire Eye Company, <laughs> Sa- sponsorship from Tarth. <laughs> All right, so we're going to go to uh, comeback player of the year. I'll give you a few options. You can, of course, choose someone that's not on my list. Fran will ask you first: comeback player of the year, Renice or Corliss. I mean, so Corliss obviously makes a miraculous recovery from what was seemed to be a lethal injury from one episode earlier. Counted out as dead. Yeah, I mean, he was, yeah, there was his brother lost his life over the fact that his the idea that his brother was going to die. But 
I think if I'm going to look at it like first five episodes versus second five episodes, uh, I found myself very much in the camp of Rainice uh, in the in the mm. final five, especially mm. in those last couple of episodes. And, um, you know, the the dynamic that she has, not just uh, with Rhaenyra, but uh, also I, I loved that conversation that she had with Allison as well when she was being held captive. Um, obviously, the, the scene that everybody talked about at the end of the penultimate was good in its own right. But I think th- those discussions that she has had and I loved the even the the uh, reunion between her her and Corliss uh, also really stood out to me uh, in the finale. It, to me, I think looking at Rainey's the, the depth of her character and how we've seen um, her always trying to nudge Corliss the right way. And right when it seems like, oh, well, Corliss is like, yeah, you know what? You're right the whole time. We, we should have been sitting on the sidelines. We shouldn't have been so aggressive. He's like, no, you fool. Like, this is now, this is where we have to be aggressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is the one uh, certainly kind of steering that ship. And so uh, Rainey's, I think, really would be the, the comeback player for me. All right, Steve, your comeback player of the year. Yeah, I think I'm, talk- I'm kind of following the same uh, path that Fran is here. I mean, like, you, you look at it, you look at what uh, Corliss did. I mean, coming back from that major injury, everybody thought that maybe it was a career ender. Um, but, you know, and you watch him on the court, and you're like, you know, he's, I mean, he's playing, but, I mean, he's really, he's a shell of himself, and who knows, maybe we're probably mm-hmm. another season away of knowing if this guy's ever mm-hmm. going to be able to be the mm-hmm. two-way player we thought he could be. Um, and I think Rainey's is really the one who's just, she's carrying him up and down the court because she's had an opportunity, right? I mean, that's the thing is when somebody's, you know, when when the bench gets depleted and somebody gets the chance to step up and maybe show their skill set that they didn't have before, mm-hmm. I, I think Rainey's is it's, uh, it's clearly the comeback player of the year. I mean, you may even make the argument, some can make the argument that she just uh, isn't so much, uh, she was maybe sixth man, uh, but now it wasn't so much that mm. she was a, a comeback player. She just didn't have the opportunity to start. So... I like this, and I think I was going to say Renice, but it just occurred to me that another name should be on this list, and that is Otto. At the end of episode five, Otto had been demoted. He wasn't even in the city anymore. Uh, Now he's got his grandson on the Iron Throne. I think maybe just for the sake of, of zigging where you guys zagged, I will, uh, I'll go with Otto as comeback player of the year. Finally, uh, dismemberment of the year. Okay, I give you a few options for dismemberment of the year. Um, the first episode, uh, a guy in Flea Bottom gets gelded. Yep. Uh, that was a very graphic dismemberment. Uh, option two, Crab Feeder loses his bottom half. <laughs> All right, that's that's a big one. Eamon loses an eye. Veyman loses half a head. Or Luke loses a torso. So, what is your Steve? What is your dismemberment of the year? Yes, it's this is where it's about. Uh, I mean, there's there's the gruesome factor. There's I think the the level of importance. Oh yeah, um, the impact on the story for sure. Yeah, and so to me, the crab feeder one gets to me that I don't need it. You know, um, and we didn't see it. I, yeah, I mean, it was, yeah. So for all we know, it was, it could have been self-inflicted. Uh, <laughs> he was holding the he wrong like, side of the sword. He tripped over a copier, you know. The and, crabs turned on him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Damon's like, oh, well, now I found it. That's, that's the big reveal in the next season. I never even touched the crab feeder. <laughs> You'd never know. He never talks about anything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um and, uh, you know, and I, and obviously, like, you know, hey, look, a guy getting gelded, look, that, I mean, it had an impact on me initially, but I mean, who was that guy, right? <laughs> and uh, so I'm going to go, I'm going to go Eamon's eye, because I think that that, uh, it, it's, 
it's symbolic. Really? It's uh, yeah, yeah. I think it makes it. Huh. I mean, I think it sets it sets a path, right? I almost I mean, didn't sets... even include it on the list, but I, I I certainly like where you're going with this. The narrative impact is certainly yeah. The narrative impact. Mm. Um, uh, if you even go back to like you said, just the sheer pageantry that now goes along mm-hmm. with it. I mean, mm-hmm. good grief! I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I know that like it's gonna feel like after like seven reveals of the eye, we're gonna be like, okay, we get it to Sapphire Eye, but I'll probably be tuning in every time. Like every, I mean, I want every penultimate episode to have an eye uh, reveal. <laughs> like maybe it changes color. Maybe it did, you know? totally different. I love Logos. the idea. That it's like it. It's like a mood eye. Well, now that we know that he's getting sponsorship, I would expect a little T for Tarth on there. Yeah, he's got a little Rakuten eye. And he's gonna... <laughs> All right, uh, dismemberment of the year, Fran. Uh, I got to think. I got to go with the uh, the shock factor of Vaymond. Uh, you know, you knew once he said yeah. it that that it was about that it was going down. Mm-hmm. But uh, and even you know, Damon saying like, "Say it," you know, "Say yeah, it." But just right. the the way with which it happened and the shock factor, uh, mm-hmm. I think it, it's got to be Vaymond losing half of his head. That that's that's only Joe Theismann scale of uh, just gruesome injuries that you witness yeah. in person. Um, you know, I think that that certainly maybe doesn't have like quite the narrative impact mm-hmm. uh, of aiming losing his eye um but i think that that's probably the one that just like catches you most off screen yeah okay i was yeah, thinking i don't that. know if, i don't know if you realize they actually say like if it's in the background and it, it's it's in old valyrian but if it translates to finish him <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna go with luke loses a torso i feel like i was really i was really impacted by the season finale and that final chomp and you're just seeing those arms and legs falling into the clouds. I thought that was amazing. It sets up the, clearly it sets up the second season. So you get the visual and you get the narrative impact there for both ends. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We're getting geared up for the sixth annual summer badass fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off badass season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints, except it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre, We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was, and those of you who didn't, (laughs) now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim, order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar, then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. 
Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. Okay, now let's do MVPs. Now, I will start with your power rankings uh, last time we met. And, uh, Steve, your power rankings from first to fifth were Otto, Laris, Alicent, Damon, and Renera. Mm-hmm. I just want to note, you had, you had three Team Green members at the top. Mm-hmm. And I think that the fact that kind of the the team green seems to have the upper hand at this point, I think it probably justifies this list pretty well. But I'm wondering, who do you place as the season MVP? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I had in the power rank is what Otto was still was number one. Otto was number um, one. Laris number two. Allison three. Damon four. Renera five. Yeah, so, I mean, in terms of the overall season, I mean, we're talking, okay, that that's a, it's a, this is why, you know, MVP discussions are so important, right? I mean, um, yeah, we don't want the best player. We want the, the player who's most valuable to their respective team. Right? Yeah, yeah, then in that case, I'm going to, I think I'm going to stick with Otto in this particular case. Wow. I think, I think, uh. Uh, I mean, let's just look at the way you distilled it a little bit ago. I mean, he's got his grandson on the throne, right? Possession mm-hmm. is nine tenths. Mm-hmm. I mean, right now, anything that anybody's doing is actually to attack and usurp that which has already been recognized now, and it's it, the, the the coronation has happened. So everything now is is essentially treasonous. Yeah. Right? Also, Aegon's relationship with his mother is pretty fraught. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think you often see teenage boys push away from their mothers and it's at a certain stage of their life. I don't know that he has much of a relationship at all with his grandfather, and I think that that might actually help Otto kind of come in. He's got a, you know that older male voice in a very patriarchal society. I, I think that that I think Otto is situated pretty well. Yeah, again, it's yeah having that having that voice, having the uh, the history of being the hand, all of those things are so so you don't have to even see him. Like even if you had like a, a relationship that was a little bit more standoffish with your grandfather, mm-hmm. this relationship isn't even that anymore, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's this is this is wise counsel, um, and yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think the fraught relationship with his mother is going to make it so that he's much more susceptible to listen to somebody who is a man who is been in charge, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and especially was kind of like he was proxy in charge while you know his his own father was essentially you know rotten away okay so fran let's look at your power rankings at mid-season you had allisant number one that's a pretty decent choice laris number two corliss number three damon four and renera five um i would say aside from corliss is a pretty solid starting five um we almost kind of lost track of Corliss for a while but Having Allison at the top was a pretty strong choice. Now that you've seen the full season, who's your MVP? You know, I I thought about this, and I think I'm going to have to bump Allison from one to two, 
And I'm going to have a big riser here because I, I really feel that. And my, my big question with Rhaenyra in the first five episodes was how willing was she to be able to play the Game of Thrones, right? right? To, to be able to uh, play that politics game. And I think we saw a much more tempered version of Rhaenyra in the final five episodes of the right. season. Uh, someone who was willing to uh, not just, you know, fire and blood everything or, or just completely ignore everything that uh you know that that entire side yeah, of the she's battle all grown up that yeah one. i think that was a, a huge transformation that you know you could question whether or not uh it was a little too abrupt you know from one side to the other but now that we have seen that over these last five episodes um yeah i, I think that to me uh really kind of stood out and so i actually would have rhaenyra at number one now oh, uh, with that wow. with allison at number two uh MVP. and i think that yeah, I, I think for me, Rhaenyra, and and this could be maybe it's maybe it is an Emma Darcy thing as well. I think that she was awesome in these final yeah. five episodes. Um, but but to me, I would say that uh, Rhaenyra uh, would would be my MVP now. Wow. Okay, my starting five for my power ranking went from Rhaenyra number one, Lionel number two. That was a big miss. It was my my draft draft a bust, Lionel. <laughs> gets killed the next episode that pick went up in flames yeah yeah that's you got it you got it. uh allison three damon four Aegon five i was the only one with Aegon mm-hmm. on the list otherwise this list is not good uh <laughs> this, this is pretty bad pretty bad uh mvp of this i think i i gotta go rhaenyra just because i feel like she's set up to really wreak some havoc season two uh, even though she's not on the throne right, this is why you guys shouldn't have your mvp votes right we're, we're, we're going to start giving people most valuable potential now come on guys i'm talking about this season what have you done i man? think what, that what, what, it, you go throughout the entire season who's who's the biggest case for the main character of the show i would probably say viserys until the last two episodes and then rhaenyra really takes over so i think that Rhaenyra is well-placed as the main character of the show. So you're saying Viserys was the MVP, but then he had that uh, season-ending injury. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... Maybe maybe I'm putting Rhaenyra as the finals MVP. <laughs> and maybe that, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm maybe that's what my problem, is that I'm letting the playoff performance influence <laughs> a regular season job. All right, I, I'm going to change this. Viserys is my MVP, and Rhaenyra is my, my finals MVP. If I remember right, the three of us agreed that Viserys was the MVP of the first five episodes. Uh, so I think right. that tracks. Yeah, I don't even know how you give. The, so you're giving the finals MVP to the to the losing team. That's I mean that's a bold <laughs> move for Jerry West. <laughs> there you go. Well, I I did grow up a Warriors fan. I'm I'm, I'm very well acquainted with losing. Um, I have some trade scenarios for you. I want to hear now. Uh, Steve, this is for you. Let's say you're the GM for Team Green. Okay. Mm-hmm. You get Rhaenys and her dragon, or and and here's what here's what you would have to give up in return: Helena, her dragon, and her prophetic ability. Oh. So Rhaenys for Helena. What, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna. Uh... I'm not. I'm not making that move. I mean, am I getting Helena and her prophetic ability? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The thing that that we consistently go, oh look, she predicted that. Um, 
<laughs> to me, it's <laughs> oh, you mean you mean do you understand anything she's saying? <laughs> right, exactly. So it's well, like, it's oh, like, so that... if, like some coaches don't know what they have. So some coaches got they've got Andrew Wiggins, but they don't know how to get anything out of him. Right, <laughs> right. Now that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, she's. So you're saying you're saying that that Helena's. You know, if people would just listen to her gibberish every once in a while. Now, you're Team Green here at this point, right? You're yes. getting Renice, yeah. So you'd be getting Renice. I'd be getting Renice. It could be yeah, that you don't really understand what the value that Helena has. But if you did, what what would you choose? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with Renice, right? I'm trying to win now. Um, and I feel like she's she's, she's ready to go. She's ready to go, like, you know, as great as it would be. Look, if I'm look if I'm trying to if I'm if I'm in a rebuilding year, you yeah, know, yeah. if I'm trying to get that then then by all means give me give me somebody who's a little out of the box and that I could actually like like mm-hmm. again, I would I would get someone that um we'd probably bring in like an assistant yeah. that only specializes in trying to figure out what the hell she's talking about. Mm-hmm. Okay. Fran, you're a, a GM for Team Green. You get the you get offered the following trade Damon for Amond. Damon mm. for Amond. Whoa. Yeah. Um I think I'm gonna say no to that de- to that deal. Uh is it youth? Youth? Yeah, because of youth, but now but actually now that I'm thinking about it, I think that uh Damon, I mean, he we already know he controls one dragon and potentially based oh, off that finale control it might be it might control two uh and one that is uh apparently just as big or, or close to the same size as vagar whereas aemon as we see does not have control yeah yeah uh, of of uh vagar so interesting uh, but i think i think the youth might win out if i'm a general manager i typically have the uh the long term the long view in mind so, mm-hmm. so i think i might uh i might take that i also would take the rainy's deal as well i would take rainy's because uh-huh. okay. i feel like she could be a booster uh for allison in terms of being able to bring out the, the best in her like and it. kind of elevate her uh forward as well i love it all right yeah and i think that's a really good point too about the aemon versus damon thing because I, I think you could even go further and say okay look yeah he's got he may have two dragons or more yep. but the question is, did Eamon not have control of the dragon, or are we in a situation where we realize that maybe nobody has as much control over the dragons mm, as we thought? Mm. So maybe there's actually, it's it's not in Damon's best interest to have multiple mm. dragons right. if he doesn't have, like if you have if you have uh, like less control over multiple dragons, like they say, you have no dragons. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, this is another one for you, Fran. You are a, uh, the GM of Team Black. Okay. Would you trade Corliss and all of his ships for Laris and a book of matches? <laughs> um, no, I think I, I think I would keep Corliss. Uh, I think I would keep Corliss and the, and the ships. And, and look, we don't know what the long term viability is mm-hmm. of Corliss, but I just I think that uh, having that fleet uh, is just of so much importance for uh, the for Team Black right now. Uh, you are you. I'm assuming. Well, I guess I shouldn't make that assumption, but uh, that Rainice and Corliss would be a package deal. But I, I do think that if you're able to keep Corliss and those ships, you control mm-hmm. uh, obviously all of the that that Blackwater Bay and uh, all of the trade that goes in and out. Corliss has been saying incessantly, you control the step zones and you can control. Uh, all the trade going in and out of King's Landing. And so I think that that is such an important part of the siege and the war to come. Okay, now let's, if it wasn't a book of matches, it was a bottle of wildfire. (laughs) Would you take, would you take Laris then? Yeah, uh, so something something to uh, combat those ships and uh, Mm -hmm. reflect back on the Battle of the Blackwater. Um, I might. 
Don't do it, dude. Don't do it, dude. Yeah, I, I might, but I think I think I'm gonna stand strong. I think I'm gonna stand Look, strong there with Corliss. Laris is the Kyrie Irving of this world right now. Okay, <laughs> I don't care what else he might be bringing to the table. He is uh, you can't untouchable. You mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's radioactive as the GMs are saying. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> All right, Steve. Last one. This is for you. You're the GM for Team Black. Um, you can. Uh, either have Damon's murder cloak or a bowl of maggots. What do you want? You want Damon's murder cloak or a bowl of maggots? Man, the, that bowl of maggots goes a long way. I mean, I thought Vesteris was going to die an awful lot of times, but you know, just, just like he just soaks in it like a like a a, a bowl of palm olive. It's like uh, it's like an ice bath after a game. Exactly. Just. just Picture Jordan got a couple of couple of bowls of maggots on his knees. That's how he got through the flu game. Exactly. <laughs> Brendan Walsh, um, I'm curious what we might say about religion in Martin's world. And you're a religion and history specialist. And I was hoping that maybe to talk a little bit about A Clash of Kings. Um, but maybe we begin more generally with your area of research. I actually, one question for you, go. This is yeah, a yeah. weird one. Okay. But um, whenever you do your, your bird's eye view section, there's yeah. a sound bite you use. And I'm always so curious what that sound bite is. It is it sounds the... like, a, like a rock being rolled out of the way or something. <laughs> is that what it is? Yeah. <laughs> It's this is this is good. Um, uh, I think what it is is I was looking for like online free audio, like like just open source audio that anyone can yeah. use. When I first started the podcast, and I think I might have put into the engine uh, Stone Door. Okay. For some reason, I I thought of it as like it's like there's this magical door in the wall. Like, I don't oh, know yeah, if you yeah, remember yeah. this, but no, but I don't when, remember this. Yeah, when Sam's coming back through the wall, like he said, he repeats the oath of the night's watch, and it's like the mouth of this face opens into a door. And I thought that must make sort of a stone on stone sound. We didn't get to see it in the show, and I thought that's it's a really cool idea. I really missed it. I really didn't get to see it in the show, and I thought I would love to get grab a sound that I associate with that stone, that magical stone door opening. And I think, so I think that's what I did. I just, I just went into the search engine of the free website and put in stone door. And you, and you got that. And I, <laughs> and I've, used it. I've used it every, I've used it for uh, three years now. <laughs> but I'm always confused how that connects to bird's eye view. Like the name and the sound bite just don't gel for me. No. Well, I think yeah, that's a good question. You're, you're jogging my memory like this. Um, I think that, I think that bird's eye view was one of the subheadings that Aaron and I used in our book, Gods of Thrones. Yeah. And I, initially, I think that subtitle was something like metacriticism, which is a very sort of academic term that we wanted to put out the end of every chapter yeah. to talk more of the metacritical issues, you know, like, you know, is, is Danny a, a white savior figure or something? And 
eventually I just thought, who am I writing this book for? This is not a book for academics. This is a book for people who are super interested in this this world that Martin's created. And so I thought bird's eye view is a better concept. Um, so yeah, there's no relationship to a bird and a stone door. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, that's any other any other uh, sound effects questions, Brendan? No, that that was the one pressing one, and it's, it's something that comes to mind every time I hear it. So <laughs> I'm glad I was able to get on the pod yeah. for the sole reason to ask this question. <laughs> All right. All right. So, yeah, so I'm curious to hear your thoughts on House of the Dragon, if you've been watching House of the Dragon. I have. I'm, I'm up to date. Oh, it's uh, great so far. I, I'm you, really you like it. it. You like it so far. Yeah, I, I think it's returned to form for the whole series. Oh, interesting. Okay, so have you noticed, I mean, there there are a couple religious elements to this show, but I don't feel like I've learned a whole lot more about Targaryen religion in this show. No, that's something that is lacking. In House of the Dragon, yeah, we are strangely devoid of information about um, so the Targaryens because I know in um, in Old Valyria they had their own gods, own worship gods. But as soon as the Targaryens left, they seem to have, you know, sort of sort of turned themselves into gods in in, mm-hmm. in, in in this new land that they came to. Now, one thing that you could say is that prophetic oracles tend to come from a stance of faith, right? Yes. And this show definitely leaned into the prophetic aspect of the Targaryens in that some Targaryens are thought to be dreamers. So this seems to be a primary motivation for Viserys. So at least we have that bit of window into, you know, not only are the families out of old Valyria motivated at times and sometimes quite convincingly about their prophecies the prophecy continues to motivate Viserys even into the present and I think that there's something about that that is an outworking of faith how do you see that oh well the thing with with prophecy in the Game of Thrones universe I think it it does happen a lot like every character or not like all the main characters seem to have some touch of of prophecy to them and it's not sort of uh, reliant on any one faith this is the one sort of shared uh power that all faiths all people seem to possess particularly in you know in the game of thrones world but yeah there's something special about targaryens that their form of prophecy is directly tied to, to the fate of, of, of westeros so beyond that but yeah th- there is something special about their prophecy because i guess it's connected to their bloodline you almost see that something of a parallel here with the ancient Egyptians. Like they're connected to these to the supernatural, and it's almost as if the the you know the pharaoh represents the deity. Uh, I you know you almost get the sense that these Targaryens put forth that particular political view to their own advantage. But of course, when you get them talking amongst themselves. They kind of know that that's not true. Prophecy is a part of their of their their statecraft, essentially. I guess another way that you could look at it is that like Damon Targaryen is like a true believer. Like he really does believe, you know, the doctrine of exceptionalism. He really does believe I'm a species apart. I'm actually a higher form of life. I'm the dragon, and everyone else in this kingdom is my prey. He kind of acts that way. 
know, he he almost does not respect anyone who isn't a Targaryen or isn't from Old Valyria. Um, so I wonder if I wonder if there's something to be said about Damon's primary vo- motivation because he is so invested in the traditions of Old Valyria. Yeah, that is a good question. Uh, yeah, you're right. He does see himself as apart from the rest of the world, and I think because of that he's able to, you know, to commit these. These, these, these terrible deeds, knowing that he's in the right, like this is for for the greater good. He, he is immune to the laws of the land, which is this is this is a big sticking point between the Faith of Seven and Targaryens. Faith of Seven is really, uh, you know, they're trying to uh, uh, you know push their own morality and own ethics upon Targaryens, but we see with Daemon that he is, you know, and other members of Targaryens who marry their their siblings and commit commit incest that they sort of have this. You know, test regard for the laws of, of Westeros and like to perform in their own way. Yeah. Okay. So that's interesting. So I want. I feel like I'd. I'd love to get right into a clash of kings with you, um, because yeah, sure. we are introduced to Melisandre in this prologue. She brings a unique window into monotheism, which we really haven't seen a lot in Martin's world yet. So you almost start to start to see a little bit of a a clash in religions, whereas in the previous book it was a little bit more synchronistic between the old gods and the new. It was almost sort of like you know th- there there were some sort of cultural clashes, but nothing like we see with Melisandre. So I, I'm I'm curious. No, you're right. You're exactly right. Yeah. I'm curious what you might say about her as a representative of either ancient concepts or early modern concepts? Well, okay, I think what Melisandre represents is sort of a Eastern esoteric sort of religion creeping into the world. And particularly when in in contrast with the Faith of Seven, which is very, you know, it's, you know, Catholic in general. It's very clear mm-hmm. that George Martin has, uh, has, has modeled the Faith of Seven on the medieval Catholic Church. And in the prologue, in particular, we see that the that the, the sort of the faith of seven is in direct contrast to the powers of of Melisandre and uh, her red religion. Mm-hmm. In particular, we see um, Maester Crescent. He he in in the prologue, there's a whole whole section where he he's trying to, to poison Melisandre because yeah. he sees her as a threat to, to Stannis. And she is able to overcome that poison with, with, with sort of powers beyond his 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 reckoning. Yeah, beyond his uh, his study here. Yeah, exactly. So he he's, he has faith that um, this is the right course to take, and he you know he is tended to take them both out. And I think in this case we see that um, he had, he's using poison, which is a really you know um, material worldly approach to deal with something while she is using these his, his powers his spiritual powers whatever she uh in a prologue it says that her, the gem on her neck starts to glow when she drinks the poison and she's able to somehow through that be immune to its powers my my sense is that the faith of the seven represents yes indeed the medieval catholic church but i my my sense is that it represents roman religion more generally and the reason why I would say that is that Rome was thought of, you know, the city on on seven hills. Uh, you know, that's that's kind of how Rome was thought in the ancient world. It was the city with seven hills, 
And of course, yeah. what we have with the Faith of Seven is something of sort of an Andal tradition that comes over to Westeros. So you see that kind of interest in the number seven come over with the Andals. It's almost like the Romans are coming to England in, in a sense. Um, and of course, that does somewhat parallel the spread of Christianity, but not in the early stages. And so I, I wonder if I wonder if the faith of the seven is is a bit more broad than just the just Catholicism. Yeah, I'll I'll I would say it it, it, it sort of resembles the sort of Roman Empire during its much later periods, as it had become a uh, Christian, and and also as it was invaded by the by the by the Goths. So, what during the fifth century the Visigoths came to Rome and they invaded it and they and they sacked Rome itself. But then they were sort of converted when they sacked Rome. So I think you can make a comparison to the to, to the Targaryens and the invading hmm. Visigoths because we see the Targaryens come and they they sort of fuse their beliefs with the Seven, use that facade to to rule uh, as uh, in, in, across the kingdoms. Right. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So. When Mel comes to Dragonstone, she brings this new faith with her, and she also brings prophecy with her. And yes. from a more, I guess we could say, a xenophobic perspective, her god represents some kind of demon. And I think I think we see that mentioned several times by people who are unsure of, of Mel and what she provides. And we kind of see that. You talked a little bit about, you know, the use of demonology to demonize, you know, literally demonize, you know, someone's religious rival. And I, I think this is exactly what we're seeing with Melisandre. Yeah, exactly. No, like, um, as you see from the prologue, um, with, with the maester, he's clearly uh, labeling her as a witch or invoking mm-hmm. the image of a witch. And if we if we go back to our demonology, um, sort of, if you were a witch, you had you had sort of um, signed a contract with the devil, and then in turn the devil would give you sort of powers and, and abilities beyond a normal person. So in this case, we have the maester confronting someone who's made a, a demonic pact with a, a god or some sorts, and he's you know he's powerless before her. Right, right, right. So. So Cresson, of course, wagers, and he bets wrong, and he dies. And then, of course, what Mel is going to require, and this isn't always the case with missionaries. In fact, I think it's almost rarely the case with missionaries. But she almost spreads her religion. I mean, she's like riding a political horse. It's interesting that she's chosen Stannis as her horse that she's going to ride to spread her religion. Uh, or is it possible that she's not interested in really spreading the whole thing? She just she just really believes the prophecy. So she really is going to get behind Stannis and take that as far as it needs to go. I think she is content with Stannis. She thinks uh, she's in a great position of power. And she, and she believes that he, he, he's the one the prophecy. So through, through him, she, she can achieve her means. Right, and then we have this parallel with her and Thoros, right? Yes. Um, if you think back to what his original mission was, it was to convert Robert. And of course, it's 
Robert ends up converting Thoros, I think, in the end. Um, because Thoros goes from priest to hedonist. Yes, exactly. Uh, rather than rather than Robert going from hedonist to, you know, adherent of the red god or whatever. It's almost like Relore worship has this system of proselytization where you're almost supposed to begin with the king. It's almost like, you know, it's almost like, hey, if we can convert Constantine, then we can actually change the entire religion of the entire country. Um, which, you know, I, I don't know if that has worked many times in history, but it, it did It did ha- end up working for Constantine, right? So no, that, that, That's right, yeah. No, I think that their strategy of going to, like, the leader and trying for a top-down approach is, is, is the right one. And it, it works some of the time. Some standards, we know that his... His house does convert. His his wife is a, is a big believer as well, and I think you know if if Stannis had had actually managed to to conquer uh, Westeros and become a king, maybe it would have been more successful. Maybe the religion would have uh, would have flourished. But you know, it all rides on him succeeding. So, and this is the yeah, case and I, see, I think yeah. she's pretty sure of herself. I mean, early on when we meet her, um, you know, the show's a little bit different in the later seasons, but. It feels like she's pretty certain that Stannis is going to be the horse that wins the race. What's interesting to me is not only does R'hllor worship come into conflict with the Faith of the Seven, but then in the latter books, we see Stannis go up to defend the Wall. And then we see kind of R'hllor religion to interface with I mean, I guess you could almost call the the Night's Watch something of a religious uh, community. Uh, it's, yeah. it's just that it's just that the Wall is kind of the deity in, in in that system. But then, of course, then the then you're dealing with the old gods as well. Yeah, yeah. I suppose you could you can make a comparison with the Night's Watch and and the Templars, and their sort of mission is to is to defend the realm. Yeah, I had a guest on who was talking a little bit about the way that monotheism is represented in Martin's world. And of course there are other monotheisms, you know, lurking, you know, like the drowned God and whatnot. Yeah. This guy, uh, Jason Eberle, he, he basically said there, there's something that monotheism brings to the table in this world that other religions don't. And it's almost this because of, because it is monotheism, there's almost an exclusivity you don't find in the other religions because they are more polytheistic they're generally going to be open to the idea that a different culture has a different god and that's legitimate for them yeah um i agree because um with faith of seven for some reason it is tolerant of other religions particularly in westeros like it's like the it doesn't go out and try to suppress uh the, the old gods or worship of the old gods uh, I think it's told of the Roaring Iron Dawn, um, and, and and I think it is from a historical perspective. Like a these sort of uh, polytheistic religions, they, they do have a place to accept other gods because they themselves have like have a pantheon of gods. So it makes more sense that they would they would uh, recognize gods in other places. Like with, with Rome, they they had their pantheon, but at the same time they understood that there was gods in other lands that other other people worshipped. But as we see from Rome converting to to a Christian outlook, uh, because there was only one God, and that sort of uh, you know 
dismisses all other claims to faith and other lands and religions itself. I think yeah, it, and I is, think that there's, yeah. even though there generally is something of a tolerance, historically speaking, you know, these religions did clash. Like, for instance, you know, the faith of the seven is not super excited about Targaryens marrying brother to sister. And so they clash a bit with that. And the Faith of the Seven ends up coming up with this doctrine of exceptionalism where they're like, well, the Targaryens are something of a different species, and so they, they have different rules. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and then, of course, the, the, the Andals do end up cutting down a lot of the weirwood trees in the south, or most of the weirwood trees in the south. So you do see something of a clash early on, but then over time, eventually there comes some kind of equilibrium. Um, uh, in terms of structure and appearance, I think the, the Faith of Seven is, is, is clearly me- me- medieval Catholicism. But in the sort of the, 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 the sort of religion being practiced is probably from a, from a much later date, like probably 18th or 19th century. We see it's a lot more modernized in how it's practiced. It is, for one, it's very tolerant of other religions. Uh, two, it is, is not such a resort to um, esoteric sort of... Uh, uh, performances of devotion. It's a lot more secularized uh, point of, of worship when the faith is seven. Yeah, and even you have with the High Sparrow later on, you have something of a, I don't know if I would exactly call it a reformation, but there's almost a a Protestant Catholic split with the High yes, Sparrow. Yes, exactly, yeah. So that would certainly be early modern for, for sure now the other major storyline that we meet in the clash of kings is the business beyond the wall and we see that craster is some kind of adherent to the white walkers he almost views himself as offering human sacrifices to the white walkers um, and of course, Jon Snow discovers this, and there's there's some question about like like what is what does Craster actually think he's doing? I, I and I, I I'm not sure if this is in the books, but at one point in the show, he's like you know he's being confronted, and he says I'm a godly man, and I wonder what he means by that. And I, the only thing that I can think that he thinks he means is that he he is an adherent to these gods beyond the wall. And so he's got some some kind of covenant with them. Uh, but I wonder, it's an interesting question for religion because I think that, I think it, the, the general thought is that there are no gods, no real gods in Martin's world. Uh, but if you, if you think of the Targaryens as kind of Greek gods and the, you know, the... The creatures beyond the wall is kind of Jotunheim or something. Mm. You almost do have these deities that they just don't look in the way that you know modern people think deities look. Yeah, that's that's a that's a great point. Um, yeah, I think Martin has gone on record in, in interviews saying that you know perhaps there's no real gods, but they're just underlying all this is a general sense of magic. That that every religion has their own interpretation of. So it's not really there's different gods. More like there's uh, sort of a spiritual force in the universe that manifests in different ways in, in in different locations to different people. 
And with Craster, I guess that he's, he's following a very old way that's you know, that's outside the, the faith of the Andals. Um, I think in particular, he's, he's worshipping gods or deities that have direct power. He's, he's able to, you know... Yeah, say, you know, whether or not they're actually deities is kind of secondary. It's, the, it's that Craster thinks that they are and, and treats them as if they are. Yeah, exactly. And I think it goes to a much greater point about, about the religion in Game of Thrones, because... We see with the the faith of seven. There's no real, you know, uh, displays of, of of spiritual power like attributed to the the septons or anyone connected to the faith of seven. But as we go further outside of Westeros and see in later books that there's there's religions with power attachment, like you mm. know, like the, uh, the the old gods and the red priests and you know, the and Jack and Hagar and his religion. Like there is power as well, and power connected connected to religions, but just not. With the faith of the seven, yeah, and right. and from a historical point of view, like sort of the best way to to demonstrate the anyone anyone uh, validity of a religion is, is through displays of power. If you go back to the Bible, we see with Christ and his disciples, a key way that they showed that like the validity of their faith was to perform like these miraculous deeds. They have Jesus is healing people, he's expelling demons, he is walking water, performing all these great deeds, and this is how he and his disciples showed that, that they are the real deal. But when it comes to the faith of seven, we see no sort of special gifts attached to that religion at all. Yeah, I and, and I think that I, I've seen this from time to time online is like, you know, people ask, well, why would anyone follow the faith of the seven if it's the one religion that doesn't have any kind of magic behind it, right? Yeah, exactly. And I, I've always said, oh, no, that's exactly the religion I would follow. Because I don't want to be anywhere near someone like Melisandre. I, that that would freak me out. I would if I'm if I'm around Craster. Nope, I don't want any part of that. You, I, the faceless men. You guys are basically assassins. Not interested. Um, I, Drown God. No, I think I'm. I think I'm okay. Don't want to be baptized. Um, I want a priest who. Is there to marry my, you know, marry me, marry my, yeah, my, my sons and daughters. When it comes time, I want them to give a good funeral, and I want to go about my daily life. And I, I almost think that that's the religion in Martin's world that provides the social dynamics of the rituals that yeah, provide the yeah. pattern for the people of Westeros. In other words, I would say that it's the it's. The, it's the one thing in Martin's world that is especially religious because it's, it's almost like the, the religion of the old gods is a little bit loosey goosey. You know, Mm. there are rituals, but they're not nearly as developed as the rituals around the faith of the seven. No, you're exactly right. No, I think the whole point of faith of seven is to provide a a contrast with the other sort of marauding, uh, actual forces on the borders of Westeros. And as we see um, at the end of book one, with Denny and sort of her dragons being released from the eggs, that sort of signals the release of magic into the world. And over the next few books, we see that, that, that the magic is coming to Westeros. Like the world is becoming re-enchanted in a sense. Mm-hmm. And that, that is, you know, these forces are coming on to the land of Westeros and people are beginning to see things they haven't seen in thousands of years. Right. I think the other the other important aspect of the Faith of the Seven, and I think that we'll probably see that more maybe toward the latter half of, 
a clash of kings is that it's it's a very useful religion for political machinations. So if you want to, you could say something like, you know, what should we do with this traitor? Well, the father's just, we need justice, you know? Um, Or if you wanted to, you know, let the person off the hook, you could say, you know, the mother, the mother provides mercy. I think we should let this person off the hook. So it's, it's almost like the, the seven faces of God are a way to, brand whatever political choice you feel like is most advantageous to you as the Lord of the Kingdom. That's my sense of it. No, I agree. Um, I sort of, this is, as Martin describes it, we see that uh, religion and politics are fully, uh, fully infused in, in, in Westeros. And their sort of uh, code of ethics is totally, um, it's, it's developed from their from their faith so we see that um as as practiced by rulers they, they take their their laws are uh, influenced by how their faith is practiced and how mm. it's laid down by acceptance so we, and yeah i i guess in comparison to other religions in in game of thrones we we sort of see that um you know the the king and the high sparrow or the high high septum whoever the top of the church are, are really that they, they are Hand in glove, that they are, they're, they're using yeah. each other to the to to the best uh, benefits, and they're in in tandem. No, I think that that's the design of it. I think that if the kingdom is functioning smoothly, you've got the high septon rubber stamping everything that the king does, and the king in turn doesn't do anything that's kind of upset the religion of of the folks in the kingdom. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And this also connects to like sort of a big theory about um, about the role of the citadel and the maesters in Martin's world. There is this mm. idea that uh, that they are sort of the ones pulling the strings behind the faith of the seven, and they are they they are promoting a religion that down downplays uh, magic and all these other sort of yeah, spiritual right. forces for their own means. Yeah, and I've and I've just outed myself as someone who's say pro maester in this way. You're promised, okay. <laughs> I want I want less magic. I don't like I don't like what dragons do. I don't want my entrails hung from the branches of a tree. I don't want assassins running around with with no checks and balances. Um, no, but you're right. There there is sort of a prominent fan theory that uh, has the maesters using the Faith of the Seven as a tool in the same way. I, I guess I've just described as you know, that the, the religion has been used as a tool by the kings as well. But I guess I guess the fan theory, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that, that the Faith of the Seven is actually invented by the maesters. And if that's the case, the whole mythology of the Andals is just fabricated. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm quite sure there's, there's different interpretations. There's like this more a- a- extremist view of, the, of this theory and a more, you know, more average view, like... But yes, like the Mokshim issue is that the that whole whole mythology is invented for the purposes of, of keeping the uh, populace in check. Yeah, yeah, which this makes is sense. Sort of an, like, an yeah. opiate of the masses kind of view on on religion, which you know we will see. I mean, I guess you know I myself, as a man of faith, think that we are going to get winds of winter, and yes, I, uh, I I think so as well. <laughs> and not, and not and then, sure of course, when, but I feel it. Yeah. It's coming. <laughs> yes. 
And then, of course, I think we'll also see developed in that book something that's introduced more robustly in Clash of Kings, and that is uh, the the Ironborn faith, right? So we see the whole pike, I guess you'd call it the culture of the Ironborn in this book. And then, of course, we will find, we'll, you know, we'll learn of, uh, what was his name? Aaron Damphair. Yeah, I, I think that's Who's right. a, a, pro, a prophet and uh, sort of a, a more, more like a, a prophet with a political point of view. And so it's interesting that we have that religion come to the fore in this book, because I think that that's what a lot of people are expecting from Wins, that we will get to see a little bit more of the sort of Lovecraftian religiosity. See some of these deep ones come to the fore. Yeah, but I, th- I think the most exciting thing about Clash of Kings, um, remember when first reading it, is like the whole world really um, opens up. Like you see all, all these different religions introduced, um, see all different cultures come into play, and we see a lot, lot more pieces on the chessboard that, that come into play. Yeah. You know, you're going to see the, the whole business about Bran going north, and then, of course... Um, we have we meet, you know, sort of the one of the real magical players in the universe, uh, and you know, and that connects. My sense is that Three Eyed Crow connects very deeply with you know the religion of the old gods. Yeah. So let me ask you a question about that. Um, what is what is the relationship between the religion of the old gods? And the magic of the White Walkers, in your view, are these two distinctly different things, or like is, it, does one come out of the other? You know, we we got a little bit of, of an answer in, in the show, but it seems like the the books are going a different direction with all of that. Yeah, I I actually have no real idea. Um, so, if I recall correctly, the show says that the the, the white walkers were, were created by the children of the forest. Is that right? Yeah, so yeah, that's the idea. They, the they, it's like they they created a weapon, yeah, and then the weapon turned against them or something like that. Which which is an interesting idea for sure. Um, but it's it's clear to me that Craster is offering his baby specifically to the others. The Children of the Forest, Three-Eyed Crow, is set in antithesis to the others. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. It, like the whole whole uh, sacrificing crash to does suggest that there is sort of a a, a a system of religion already in place. And if that, if if the Children of the Forest had created the White Walkers, then it's unlikely that they would have their own sort of mythology themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting because it we almost I mean in the in some of the deepest lore uh we have the the sense that the children of the forest have their own system of worship. Yeah. And and you know they they look to these tree spirits um as gods. So you so it's it's interesting. I I'm not sure where that overlap is uh between what Craster thinks he's worshiping and what the children of the forest think that they're worshiping, and how the three-eyed crow relates to the to these things. I mean, one way that you could look at it is that like three-eyed crow is part and parcel with sort of northern ice magic, 
Yeah. But is just in a political struggle with the White Walkers. Interesting view. Well, I guess it depends. I guess you could say with the White Walkers or the others that they're sort of born in a cold climate. So they're, they, they have a intrusion of the natural world, which is you know, ice all around them. So I guess it makes sense that their religion would develop into something that reflects their lo- location where they were born, where they grew up. So it, it might be, in fact, a, a sort of the same religion but just uh, practice in in different ways yeah the analog here would be like the high sparrow it's like the high sparrow and circe are on the surface both adherents of the the faith of the seven right but Mm. they're locked in this political struggle and both and both you know appealing to a, a different authority to to make their struggle to give their struggle credence. And so then the question is, is there something similar happening with the White Walkers and the Children of the Forest? I mean, that to me, that's the real interesting thing about how this series will end. Because it seems to me the big baddie is not the person who sits on the Iron Throne, but the person who's invading from the North. And of course, you know, we're eventually going to see ice and fire meet. And it seems to me that's going to be the, you know, the final conflict, the the biggest conflict. And yet here we are. We know a lot about the Faith of Seven. We know almost nothing about the White Walkers, right? Yeah, uh, uh, Martin has been, you know, he's not given us any more information for what's, what seems like 10 years now about what, what, what the others and White Walkers are doing. You're right. So I, I, right. I'd hope in in this latest book, when it eventually does come out, that we will get a lot more information on what is going on in the north. Yeah, me too. I mean, I, it's possible that we won't. It's possible that it's you know we're going to hear a lot about the the drown god and and all that business. Uh, you know, Martin so far has not really given the White Walkers much of a culture, and of course, you know, we won't really see a system of religion. If in if we if we don't see a culture developed, uh, you know, if they're just avatars for the weather, there's really no need to have a religion attached to them now that Craster's gone, right? So yeah, no, no, that's true. That's true. Um, hey man, I really appreciate you coming on to yeah. chop it up with me. You know, this book Clash of Kings really starts to play with a few of these concepts, and so I wanted to maybe lay a, a foundation or a groundwork for some of the themes that we'll meet in that book. And um, so anyway, I, I really appreciate it. I think it's been a pleasure. And just, and just having discussion about vision in general, is it sort of gave me a new appreciation of how rich this world is. I, I, I thinking through a few of these issues, like really gives me insight. Like, oh, with Martin, he's done his homework. He's, yeah, he's yeah, really yeah. He put a lot of effort into making each religion feel distinct and, right. and reflective of the culture where it was, was born. Yeah, exactly.